I read a book this summer uh, called The Wisdom Pyramid. And the author had a really clever analogy because many of you are familiar with a food pyramid, right? The, the stuff you're supposed to eat is down at the bottom and the stuff you like to eat is up at the top. And it's a pyramid. So you're supposed to have more of the stuff that you don't like and less of the stuff that you do like. And that's why it's called a pyramid. Well, wisdom is kind of the same way in that this author says there are sources of information that we get that we get uh, uh, from all different kinds of sources. And when we get information from the Word, then that is the, the, the most basic, that's the most needed level of information, and it kind of works its way up through uh, uh, encyclopedias or, or, or basic historical and documentary kind of information, and then all the way up to social media, and of course Twitter is not even on there. <laughs> Because there's a, there's a sense that I, I need to take this diet in and it will be better for my overall health. And, and I need this type of information and this type of information and this type of information. And then what he comes to the conclusion is that we don't need more information. We need wisdom. And in all the years that I taught, in all the years that I, I, I was in the classroom, there was a sense that I didn't want students to receive information. I wanted them to process it. I didn't want to tell them what to think. I wanted to, to help them learn how to think. And that's kind of where God is with us. And so these, the, this particular series that we're diving into uh, uh, over the next five weeks or so, it's, it's exactly that. What's the difference between information and wisdom? Why do we need more wisdom and we don't need more information? Can we sing along with the, the, the chorus we just sang, your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness. Oh, I have control now. I have the power. Let's see if the Saints game is on. I'm just kidding. Wow. Didn't need to know that. That's, that's top of the pyramid information right there. So what we're talking about today is exactly that. That we need to be able to think critically about the stuff that's coming in. One person said that we receive more information today in 24 hours than a 17th century man received in his entire lifetime. And I would probably say today it's more like 12 hours because the number of words that we read, the number of messages that we hear, it's almost incessant and the, the question is not so much what, do we, how, what information is coming in, but what do we do with that information? How do I assess its credibility? How do I decide if I want to hold on to that information or if I just want to flush it out? Well, do, well, how do I figure out if this source is credible or that source is credible? How do I trust the information that's on the bottom of the pyramid, the Word of God, and maybe trust the stuff that's a little farther up a little less? That's wisdom. Well, the Bible speaks of wisdom. 
And I want to start with just a definition. Wisdom is acquired. We're not really born with wisdom. There, there are people that are born with more discernment maybe than others. There are people that have a gift of discernment, a, a spiritual gift. But wisdom is acquired. It comes from listening, really hearing what someone has to say. It comes from life experience, trial and error, instruction from others. We gain wisdom through the scars and defeats as well as the satisfaction and contentment, the, the successes. We, we gain wisdom both ways. And so God has, in a crazy kind of way, tucked away a library within a library in the Scripture. And uh, he, he, he says we are to desire wisdom. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said that. He said, if any of you desires wisdom, let him ask of God, and he will give it to you generously. So the, the idea of learning to think critically, learning to process information, learning to, to kind of to get rid of the bad and, and hold on to the good, that's, that's something that I hope all these children get a hold of because they're beginning to read the Word. But there are about three goals that I have with every message series that we start here at Dunwoody Baptist Church. One is that we will somehow plug into something that is a real need in your life. I, I always want there to be sense of relevance. Two is that at the end of every series, you will ask yourself, what did I learn about God in that? What, what, what more did I learn about God because I handled that part of the Scripture? What did I learn about his character? What did I learn about the way that he acts and reacts? What did I learn about his love in that passage of Scripture? And third, I want to expose all of us to different passages of Scripture and to be able to see the, the, the Bible as this living, incredible document that, that God has, has given to us with, with, with multiple authors over multiple years, with multiple times. The, 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 the five books that are called the wisdom books, they, they were not written any time in proximity to one another. They, they don't involve the same characters. They're, they're all fascinating in their own right. But all of the scholars through the ages have looked at this and said, okay, these five books seem to be different than the others. They're poetry. They mix allegory with history. They have dramatic characters. Many of it has a backstory in other places in Scripture, especially when we get in the Psalms. And so the, 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 the five wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job, and each of those five has sort of a 40,000-foot theme that sort of runs throughout the Scripture. Obviously, with Job, it's suffering. With Psalms, it's prayer. With Proverbs, it's discernment or decision-making. With Ecclesiastes, it's the perspective on things. Song of Songs, of course, talks about love, real, legitimate, biblical love. 
And so what I'd like to do over the next five weeks is to go ahead and apologize to you that, that I'm not going to do verse by verse in Job today. If I did that, you would not only be here through the end of the Saints game, you would be here through the end of the NFL season. Because there's 42 chapters, there's 150 chapters in Psalms, 31 in Proverbs. So every now and then we back up and we we look at some key verses and we look at the the book as a whole and the book of, of Job on the whole is about suffering. Suffering. The, the, the book is written because it's, it's pretty well known that, that we all join in suffering. It was written to those who have the, the question of where is God when I'm hurting? Where is God when they're suffering? Can God be trusted? And, and the, the book of Job is a, is a wonderful, wonderful narrative that, that, that talks a lot about that, but it, but it presents itself in a, in a story. You may have noticed the title of the message series, Ancient Truths for Modern Lies. Because the world is all too happy to tell us why we suffer. The world is all too happy about telling us how to pray, what we should use to gauge perspective, how we should make our decisions, how we should view love. And in each of these five wisdom books, I want to compare a little bit about what the world says with what the Scripture says. And I hope that that as we journey through this together, that we'll have a greater appreciation for these five books as sort of a boxed set, but we will also have a sense of, of what God is telling us as we process it. Chew on this first. The world tells us that suffering is karma. It's deserved. It's, it's somehow uh, a, a collision of coincidence and consequence circumstance and payback. And, and if someone suffers, there's got to be a reason for it. There's no such thing as suffering that just happens. As Robert said, we are praying for the people in South Florida, South Carolina, who have experienced a devastating hurricane that's come their way. And of course, you've heard me say before, Judy and I know a little bit about that. And when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and wiped out our house, we saw way too often in the news cycle that, that, that Hurricane Katrina was just God judging the city of New Orleans. Made us wonder why then the French Quarter was intact and the Baptist Seminary was wiped out. But, you know, to, to, that's the world. It's going to say, well, there's a cause. There's a, there's a root. There's something we don't know. There's something deep undercover. There's something there. And, and if there is a, a cosmos, if there is a guardian of the universe, he's got his long bony finger out and he's saying, I'm going to make you suffer. I'm going to make you suffer. I'm going to make you suffer because you had horrible thoughts, because you surfed a page you had no business being. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. That's our worldly concept of suffering. But the book of Job tells a very different story. So the story of Job kind of starts with the assumption 
that we as humans demand that God provide us with a reason for suffering. Now, I know that sounds harsh, and you're probably thinking, well, I don't really. Well, yeah, you do. That's just the way we're, we're wired. That's the way we're, we're packed. If, if something bad happens, we want to know why. Let me illustrate with you, audience participation part of the show. There are two questions that we always ask when someone tells us they've been involved in an automobile accident. What's the first one? Is anybody hurt? What's the second one? Whose fault was it? And too many of us reverse the order of the questions. We, we ask whose fault was it? Your insurance is about to go through the roof. Oh, yeah, and was anybody hurt? Because we want to associate crime and punishment. We want to deed and consequence. We, we think there's got to be a connection. And the, the, the premise of the book of Job is that the innocent cannot suffer. If there's suffering, there must be guilt. If there's not suffering, ergo, there's no guilt. And so we, we dive into this incredible book and I'm going to touch Scripture a lot, but not put it all on screen. So if you have a copy of a, a Bible or your, your swipey thing, then go ahead and find Job. It's a, it's a combination of, of poetry and, and history. It's, it's wonderful. But this is the very first part of it. In the land of Uz, and usually we dismiss the, the names in the Bible, right? We can't pronounce them anyway, so we just... Okay, let's just substitute Chicago. Well, in this particular one, there's a reason because it identifies a town in Arabia. There are no Jewish people in this story. It did not happen in Israel or anywhere close to Israel. It's one of the, the really unique books of the Bible that has nothing to do with God's chosen people. And there's a story in it about some guy in Arabia named Job. Was that news to anybody? You've been calling him Job all these years? So he's, he's minding his own business, but he's pretty wealthy. Then we have access to a staff meeting that took place in heaven. God calls his folks together. He said, okay, let's check on how everybody's doing. Hey, by the way, have you seen my man Job? He is blameless. He is upright. He does the right things for the right reasons. Yeah, he, he's the prototype of what I meant when I created humans. And another character enters. The, 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 uh, it's, it's almost unfortunate that the word Satan is used there because the translation is the word accuser. It's more telling us there's sort of like a courtroom scene in heaven where God is being tried for being God. And the accuser comes and he says to God, well, he wouldn't be such a hot shot if you didn't protect him. Of course he worships you. He has money. He has fame. He has power. He has good-looking kids, straight hair, white teeth, eyes that are 20-20. Why would he not worship you? Now he's poking us a little bit because we tend to be more enthusiastic about worship when things are going well. 
It's, it's sometimes hard to worship when we're hurting so bad inside. Our relationships are cratering. Something's going on with the kids. Uh, this week has been really tough in our office because we've heard story after story after story where families are just hurting. They're fragmented. They're fighting. They, they don't have a job. They don't have a hope for a future. They don't know why their adult children keep making poor decisions. They've been diagnosed with something, or grandpa's been diagnosed with something, or, or, or there's a, a very real chance that their company is going to be bought out, and they don't know what they're going to do. Uh, that, that's just this week. And in the first service, I just stopped. I said, we got to pray for families. We just got to remember families. And so Job is minding his own business, and, 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 and there's this conversation. Satan replied, or the accuser, have you not put a hedge around him in his household? You, you protect him. But now, verse 11, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will curse you to your face. So much for worship, so much for all the hands raised and the, the, the joyful singing and the kick drum and, and all of that. He will curse you to your face. Again, it's getting a little close to home because the world tells us if something bad happens to a, a supposedly good person, there must be something bad underneath. We'll go back to the story. Verse 6 tells us that Satan was allowed to test Job. Verse 13 tells us some of the stuff that's happening. Sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house. Verse 13. There came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding. The Sabaeans came and took them and struck down the servants. So all the servants are dead. Okay. Then another messenger came. The fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep, burned up the livestock, burned up the crops. Then another one came. The Chaldeans came. They formed uh, three groups and made a raid on the camels. Not the camels. Took them, struck down all of the servants that were mining the camels. So if you were a servant in Job's house and you had a job, you're toast. Verse 18, chapter 1, while he's yet speaking, another came and said, Oh, by the way, your sons and daughters were there, and a great wind came across the wilderness, collapsed the house, it fell on all of them. You've lost all your kids. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, worshiped. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, naked I will return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You talk about a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Your kids, your crops, your house, your livestock, your, everything that defined you as a person of success is wiped away in one afternoon. And so the intent is that we read that and we go, that's horrible. And it's not the intent of the Bible for you to read it and go, well, at least my stuff is not as bad as his stuff. Because to you, your stuff is just as bad. To you, it hurts just as much. 
It's just as hard to deal with. It's just as painful in the minute. Now, I don't know what it's like to get this kind of news. But I know what it's like to get the kind of news that I've gotten. I, I know what it's like to get the kind of news that you've gotten because I've watched you suffer when a child is sick or a parent is uh, dead or a job is lost or divorce or separation or runaway or substance abuse. I've seen that pain in you. And so suffering, can God be trusted? Can, can we really figure out any of this? Is it, it, can you be okay? What does the book of Job tell us about it? Well, in chapter 2, we are introduced to Job's friends. Gives us their names. Eliphaz the Temanite. Bildad the Shuhite. The shortest man in the Bible. Because he's only shoe height. <laughs> Zophar, the Namathite, they heard about all the troubles and they came to him and they did the right thing. They saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. I desperately wish they had stopped there. But the structure of Job is that the first two chapters introduce us to the story. Chapter 3 through 33 are speeches that his friends give, these, these cycles of conversation that these four men have together. One of the friends accuses, Job responds. Another friend accuses, Job responds. Another friend accuses, Job responds. Three cycles of that that takes up 30 chapters of the book of Job. I wrote in my Bible, if we really want to stand with someone who's suffering, we'll do this and not the rest of it. When my father died, we came to Atlanta and said our goodbyes as he was pronounced dead at St. Joseph's Hospital. Went back to New Orleans eventually and our home there on the campus of the seminary. We'd been back just a little while. There's a knock on the door. My teaching assistant, my PhD student, my, the, one of the guys that I was guiding was, was at the door. And I opened the door and he said, I am Job's three friends and I have come to sit with you in silence. Not, I know how you feel, because he didn't. It'll get better, because he didn't know if it would or not. And when we pastors come to where you are to hold your hand in suffering, if we do this, we're on the right track. If we say, I know how you feel, we're just talking noise. Because everybody's suffering is so personalized. And right here in the book of Job, at the very outset, before we get to all the speeches, his friends do the right thing. And that's maybe one of the golden nuggets that we find. 
Then chapter 3, actually all the way through 37. In chapter 33, uh, a new uh, friend shows up. His name is Elihu, and, and he shows up to sort of pile on. One of the repeated themes in Job is chapter uh, 2, verse 11. Job said, why didn't I just die at birth? Chapter 4, the speeches really start in earnest. And the, the heart of all of the speeches is that the innocent don't suffer. The innocent just don't suffer. So... Eliphaz starts out, chapter 4, verse 3, you've instructed many, you've strengthened weak hands, you've made uh, others uh, firm with their feeble knees, but now it's come to you and, and you're impatient. You want to say you're blameless. Memo, Job, the innocent don't suffer. There's a lot of sarcasm in this book. It's really, really funny. In chapter 6, verse 14, uh, Job kind of responds to the first round of speeches. He said, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. So he's throwing a little shade on his friends. He says, my brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed. And so he, he says, what kind of friends are you guys? Then uh, uh, they, they continue on, verse 8. Uh, chapter 8, verse 4, if the children have sinned against him, he's delivered them to the hand of the transgression. It, you know, the cause and effect, action, consequence. The innocent don't suffer. Suffering means something has happened, some decision, something's gone on. Well, that's what the culture wants to tell us. I, I could go through chapter after chapter in Job. Uh, chapter 9, how can a man be made right before God? Uh, chapter 9, verse 15, I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Chapter 11, uh, Zophar, his final friend, weighs in and he says, you deserve worse. I actually love the response of his wife in chapter 1. She said, why don't you just curse God and die? <laughs> I would recommend marriage counseling for the two of them. <laughs> why don't you just get it over with? If you have wronged God, admit it, own it, confess it. If he kills you, he kills you. Where's the will? And, and his friends say, uh, you deserve worse. Job answers chapter 12, I, I, I didn't do anything. I truly am blameless. So we've got this round of speeches. The innocent don't suffer. You've got to be guilty. Own it. Admit it. Say what you did. That's us. That's the cultural lie. The, the, the culture wants to say suffering is always a consequence. Maybe it's something you did. Maybe it's generational. Something your dad did, your grandma did. Maybe it's something that happened in your community. Maybe it's something that, that, that generations ago, and now it's coming back around. In Louisiana, they say what comes around goes around. And, and, and that's what the world tells us. 
that it cannot possibly be that you are suffering just because hurricanes spin up and they happen to hit Florida, Louisiana, Texas. I throw up in my mouth a little bit every time I see another commentator who said we should never build in dangerous places. What about the places where there's no water? What about the places where the natural resources are not there? What about the overcrowding? What about the underfeeding? What about the underserved? Should we just abandon large groups of people because a disaster has struck? No. The Scripture tells us that, that we have a stake in that. So the culture tells us poor decisions, unfortunate circumstances, bad karma. The Scripture tells us maybe we don't know everything. Maybe there is a mystery. Maybe there are some other explanations for suffering. Yes, there is such a thing as suffering because we did something. The consequences of our actions. And God doesn't always spare us from that. The statistics, statistics tell us that people who smoke are more likely to get lung cancer. That people who drive 150 miles an hour on 400 are more likely to have it not end well for them. That there, there, there are circumstances where there's a cause and effect. And we are right to say that God has the power. He has the love. He could stop the suffering. He could steer that hurricane right on out into the ocean. Why doesn't he? That's what the world wants to know. And, and they join the accuser. If God loved us so much, he wouldn't want us to suffer. If he was powerful enough, he wouldn't let us suffer. Why then do we suffer? Sometimes we suffer because we've done something. Sometimes we suffer because we live in a fallen world. Because we live in a, in, in a culture that, that, that doesn't honor God. And that other people do things or circumstances happen. That, that there are, are, are environmental factors that, that gin up and they, they cause misery for people. Sometimes suffering is a result of us living in a fallen world. And yes, when we do live in a fallen world, occasionally the innocent suffer. Father decides that he wants to drive when he's under the influence and his infant is in the back seat. God doesn't always protect the innocent. Matter of fact, it seems like it's the other way. Sometimes the, the, the drunk driver is the one who survives and, and the other ones don't. Sometimes suffering is just because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes suffering is a warning. Sometimes we, we suffer because uh, God is trying to get our attention. God is trying to help us understand that, that what we're going through really could lead to something a lot worse. That, that sometimes God is, and we can't see that. We're in such pain in the moment that we can't understand why God would possibly let me feel this bad, be hurt this much. And we go, only when we're past it. And we look back and we go, okay, I get it now. Sometimes suffering is because there's unrepentant sin. 
Will he allow sin to go unpunished? No, that's his nature. He judges sin. And sometimes suffering is, is, is triggered because there is unrepentant sin. Now, can I throw a blanket and say, hey, I've just explained suffering. That would not be faithful to the book of Job. Look all the way to the end of the book of Job in chapter 42. By the way, the way that the structure works is that there's these first two chapters, we call those a prologue, and then there's speeches by the three friends from chapter 4 to chapter 33, and then 34, 35, 36, that's another friend, Elihu, who shows up, and then God speaks. I would not want to be in that conversation. Because God starts talking to Job and the friends and go, okay, you guys have been talking for 30-some-odd chapters. Now let me talk. If you're so wise, what makes the wind blow? If you're so wise, what makes the sea go this far and no farther? If you're so wise, where do the mountain goats go to give birth? If you're so wise, why did I intervene in aardvark? If you're so wise, why don't I sit down? I'll have a seat right here, and you instruct me. A lot of godly sarcasm in there. And I'm just imagining that conversation where, where the bigness of God gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and the smallness of man gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And we think about all of the things that God does, creator, sustainer, redeemer, provider. He's, gonna, he, he's, he's made a way for us to be in fellowship with Him. Job called Him friend, and yet throughout the, the chapters that, that, that we sort of went past really quickly, Job eventually said, I, I can't see you at all. God says, do you see me now? And he goes on for several chapters, and, and, and there's no part of it that's supposed to belittle man. There's no part of this that's supposed to make us feel smaller and insignificant. We're supposed to back up and go, well, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe the bigness of God speaks over the suffering in ways that I can't understand. And so Job ends the argument in chapter 42. He says, you know, I've uttered that which I do not understand, verse 3. Things too wonderful for me, things that I do not know. I have heard you now. I can see you now. Therefore, I despise myself. Now, that sounds strong, but Job was going, what was I thinking? How in the world could I think that I had the wisdom to know about creation and chaos and cause and effect of the universe. Who am I to know that the, the picture of, of suffering may go way past anything that I can understand? And, and, and we are never told why Job suffers. Job is never alerted to the little heavenly conversation that went on. He's never told about any of that. He is simply left to worship in the majesty of God. 
The bigness of God, the the restoration of God, the love of God, the covering of God, the protection of God, the, 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 the worship of God, that's what he's left to do. Not to explain his suffering. I wonder, what if God gave him an explanation? What would that do? What would it do for us if somehow we got an explanation of our suffering? Oh, this is why. Oh, I feel better. You don't feel better. You feel the same. And, and there is more comfort in being lost in the mystery and the majesty of God than there ever would be in having a rational explanation of cause and effect. This is why. But what God wants to explode in here is the thought that we would be able to say the innocent never suffer, the righteous never suffer, the guilty always do. Not true. Sometimes suffering just happens. And all we can do, brother and sister in Christ, is be lost in the mystery of it all. Be lost in the response. Yeah, maybe it's something we did. Maybe it's something we caused. Maybe it's something, but, but maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe suffering is just to make me stop being so full of myself that I worship God. Jim Dennison in his daily article told a story this week about a Canadian family that's on a world tour because their three children all have a disease, retinitis pigmentosa, that will eventually cause them all to be blind. The family decided that they would not be in school for a little while, that they would travel all over the world and see what they could see. Says they went to Namibia to see elephants and zebras and giraffes. They went to Zambia, Tanzania, Turkey, Mongolia, Indonesia. And the mother said this, there are beautiful places all over the world. And they're trying to record a visual scrapbook for their kids who will eventually see only blackness. When good things happen to good people, we tend to credit the good people with little thought for the God who gives every good gift. When bad things happen to good people, we tend to blame God for even though he cannot be tempted with evil, he himself tempts no one. Dennison wrote this, if Christians must account for evil in a world we claim was made by a loving creator, then skeptics must account for the goodness in a world they say was random and created by chaotic chance. So yes, sometimes suffering is the cost of living in a fallen world. Nobody caused it. Yes, God allows consequences for our actions. And yes, God brings judgment on unrepentant sinners, which may or may not involve suffering on this earth. But we who believe God believe in a bigger picture that our suffering, even if it's unexplained, is part of a grander design because we worship God. And He is bigger He's bigger even than our suffering. Would you pray with me? God, I know that there are people who listen to this and go, that's nonsense. 
Why would suffering be so random? There are people who don't know you, Father, who don't feel like they could ever make sense of all this because they've never experienced the sweetness of your love that while we were still sinners, you loved us so much that you died for us. God, I would never speak that suffering is not real. I would pray that you would speak into the lives of the people that are in this room, the people who are watching online that are hurting, some with unspeakable hurt. That you would speak into them, not to promise that you'll explain or give them a reason for their hurt, but that you would say what you said to Job. I will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can separate me and you. Paul said, neither death, nor life, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Father, let us cling to that and let that be our message as we're salt and light to a hurting world that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name.